0: Find your way to Titus 3, beginning at verse 1. Titus 3, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Lord, we ask that you would open this passage to our minds' understanding for those who are separated from Christ and do not enjoy the ministry of the Spirit of God. I pray that you would dawn upon them, that you would enlighten their eyes and help them to see what they cannot see. I pray that you would grant them a soft heart where there is now a heart of stone. We pray that you would be merciful to this end, to those who know you not. And for those who know Christ as Lord and Savior, we rejoice in the truth of this passage. We pray that you would move in and through us to understand it better, to grow in its light, to mature in, in our walk with the Lord. We praise you, Father, for who you are and for the salvation we have in Christ and the difference that that makes. We plead, Father, that you will continue to direct us and mature us in Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Blessed are the peacemakers, Jesus said. Irrelevant are the peacemakers, our world seems to say. Hateful, slanderous, discourteous, quarreling jams the airwaves. It surges like a tsunami on the internet. Warring words mark our nation's debates, words that threaten to break out into much more than just words. Well, it's necessary, our world insists. America must change, rages the left. Existing systems of power are structured to promote the few and to oppress the many. We must dismantle them, creating a fundamentally different America. No rages the right. Socialism is creeping into the fabric of our society like a cancer. And our freedoms, our property rights, our heritage are at risk. We must stop this invasion at all costs. And apparently the way to do all of this is by wielding a sledgehammer of hateful, evil words, if not harmful deeds against one's enemies. It is the way of the world. And enemies. These days, enemy seems to be anyone who stands in the way of whatever we want or whatever we believe. Someone to be hated. Well, I wonder, born-again follower of Jesus, are you any different than all of this? It's not wrong to hold political views it's not wrong to defend them at times we must stand up against tyranny and those who seek to harm us or to steal from us but does Christ's saving grace in your life control the way you fight such battles the way you speak the importance you place on temporal things Is it evident to others that you serve a higher kingdom than anything found here on this earth? Is it evident that you are serving an eternal cause? An infinitely glorious king who's redeemed you from the depravity of this warring world? As important as all the debates are, is it clear as people look at your face that you come from somewhere else? You have a different agenda. Well, the fledgling churches on the island of Crete, a few years after Jesus' resurrection, were operating in a world that wasn't very far off of ours. In fact, it might have been more decadent and more warring at its very core. Evil speech, warring parties, greed, theft, lying, slander, gluttony, disregard for authorities, arrogance, all of these characterize the social culture of Crete. We have writings that exist today of historians and philosophers that noted these things. It's just who you were if you lived on the island of Crete. And in the midst of such a decadent culture, the Apostle Paul is exhorting Titus, his delegate, to teach the Cretan believers that their redemption by Christ must radically transform their lives. I think we could even say it, is it will radically transform your life. You won't live like the people around you. They may say that peacemaking is irrelevant, that grace is no importance, but you serve a Savior who said it is important. So Titus was to place then pastors in local churches in order that they might, chapter 1 and verse 9, that they might give instruction in sound doctrine and also rebuke those who contradict it. They could speak for the truth and they could see and oppose what was not right. And then in chapter 2 and verse 1, he goes to Titus who was to train such leaders and was to epitomize the calling of a local church pastor. And what does he say there? As for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Teach the sound doctrine that issues forth in a transformed life. What does that look like? Verses 2 through 10. Here's some examples of the transforming work of the gospel in the lives of ordinary people living out their lives here in Crete. The older men, verse 2. The older women, verse 3. The younger women, verse 4. The younger men, verse 6. And Titus himself and bondservants, verse 9. The theological moorings for this call to godly living we find in verses 11 to 14. Some of the most significant verses in Scripture concerning our salvation. For the grace of God has appeared. Christ has come. He's brought salvation for all people. That is, there is no salvation outside of Christ. And that salvation, that grace of God, remember it, verse 12 of chapter 2, trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. It causes us to look for the hope that is to come, to set our focus on that final day. In verse 14, remembering that he gave himself for, for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. That's not in the next life. That's here, that he would redeem us from the lawless ways that are so natural to us and purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He saved us for that that we would live those good works that we would live in this world as the body of Christ. So declare these things, he says, exhort, rebuke with all authority, let no one disregard you. So connected right there to 2.15, we move into chapter 3 and verse 1 where he continues reminding them, that is, declaring these things, speaking of this grace of God that brings salvation, which transforms lives now, remind them, he says. In verse three, or verse 1 of chapter 3, that word remind them, that phrase, that command, Could be translated, keep on reminding them. You will continue to do this, reminding them. Now, as we look at verses one and two, I believe that contextually there's evidence here that what Paul has in mind is how we relate to the unbelieving world, to society. For instance, he starts out there in verse one with rulers and authorities. We don't assume that they are in the churches and know Christ as Savior. Rulers and authorities. But we, we notice also just other indications as we look down through these two verses. As he speaks of every good work at the end of verse 1 and at the end of verse 2, toward all people. So starting with authorities and ending with all people. It seems that Paul is speaking here, how is the Christian transformed by grace intended to relate To society. In society, we could say it this way we must relate graciously to others. Don't take that word graciously lightly. That's the grace of God that saves and now flows from us to a lost world. So remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, and I think it's dash to be obedient. That is Not just be obedient, period. But obedience always in the New Testament is connected to some authority. So I think it's all one idea there. Remind them, this is what we're to be as grace works itself out in our lives. Submissive to rulers and authorities. To walk in obedience to those who are in authority over us governmentally. This is not an absolute command, of course. We know that governments can demand of us things that disobey God. And in those cases, it should be very clear to us that we must do what is right. There's a higher king that we must obey in such situations. They ought to be fairly clear, not just a disagreement with uh, the direction. Not the argument that, well, Jesus wouldn't pass that law. Like, like you knew. You know, like, not that, like since Jesus wouldn't pass that law, then I can break it. No. But there are times when government can say, we demand of you to do what is disobedient to Christ. In those cases, we are not under the directive to obey, but rather to obey God. Secondly, there are times when governing officials may use their power to harm people. Now this gets a lot more tricky To determine that this is genuine harm that ought to be dismissed out of obedience to Christ. But there, I think, just being careful with it. But we might even ask the question, just being a little safer at the moment, but does this verse and others like it teach that Christians who sided with America's revolution against, revolt against England in the 1770s, were they sinning? Were they breaking this law? They were not being submissive to authorities. They were not being obedient. Did they break this law of God? Well, it's a lot more complicated question than meets the eye. And I'll not work it out here, but I think that Bible-believing people in that day really had to come to terms with commands such as this and had to think through it carefully as to where is it right to disregard what an authority commands. Be submissive to rulers and authorities, be obedient to them, is not hard to figure out. All of the possibilities of exceptions notwithstanding, as Christians who have been saved by the grace of God, our calling is to honor the governing authorities. That saving grace trains us that way. And so we're we're not to prove uncooperative with City Hall. We do not rebel against the police. We're not lawbreakers. And we take no liberties because the wrong candidate won election. I don't like that candidate, therefore I'm free. No. We realize that those who are elected, who are placed in positions of authority, are placed there by God, and our responsibility is to honor the leadership that they have that is as legitimate. He continues on. What does this grace look like? It's to be ready For every good work. Every indicates that Paul here broadens his focus beyond the relationship. The governing officials, some tie the two. I don't think so. I think he's just saying that you're ready for every good work wherever it meets you. At home, in the church, in the community. God's grace teaches us not to shirk opportunities to serve the needs of others. But rather to hunt them out, to look for them. That grace instructs us to go into the world, to go next door, to go across the street or down the road, across town, out of state, across the seas, to serve others, to be zealous for good works. That's what God's grace does in us. It gives us a zeal to serve, a zeal to meet the needs of others and make a difference in this world for Christ. It reminds me, a couple of scenes come to mind. One is our ministry trip that we took to Philadelphia in 2019. And uh, Beth and I came, uh, flew in later after the team had arrived and were working on a church building to help a, a church that was trying to get its feet under it and it had a large facility. And uh, we were transforming the building as we were helping them and serving them. And as we came in a couple of days later, we walked into the building. It was like a beehive of activity. That was, I, it, was just, it just put a smile on your face, but just people serving Christ, giving themselves to someone else, uh, believers they hadn't met before uh, for the most part, and just serving so diligently. I remember uh, uh, you sending me on a ministry trip to Zambia and to teach there some years ago, and we were invited, our group, to a dinner at the home of a couple that was leading a ministry there. And the wife greeted us at the door, uh, and this Zambian woman uh, greeted us at the door with an apron on that was well-worn, and it said, saved to serve. I thought, this is beautiful. I felt like I'd entered into heaven for a moment there. Just she's saved to serve, and the word served was half-worn off. I think that's it. This is a picture of what God's grace does. It leads us to want to serve others, to meet needs, to give our life and our resources away that others might be benefited and drawn to Christ. Verse 2 continues to speak evil of no one. That would be as shocking in Crete as it is here. To speak evil of no one. I think indwelling sin calibrates us to speak evil of everyone. We can find a way, just about, to speak evil of anybody. But Christ did not save us so that we would cut people apart with our tongues, that slander and that we defame them and ridicule and mock and speak the worst about others. God's saving grace trains us to control our tongues, to sweeten our speech, to watch what we put on social media. His grace does that. It works that out in us. And I think we should connect it here to chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, where Paul says, One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true, therefore rebuke them. So we're not, he's not saying to speak evil of no one means you never criticize someone. But it's that speech that is accurate, that is true, that is helpful, that is sweet. Seasoned with salt. Gracious. The grace of God teaches us, verse 2, also to avoid quarreling. As the ultimate peacemaker, Christ reconciled us to God while we were His enemies. Think of it. How unfitting for us who were so treated by God... To seek out fights with others. Our world may deem quarreling as a necessary skill for leadership. Jesus thinks otherwise, and he was a better leader. An infinitely better leader said, avoid quarreling, to be gentle. This Greek word has a very broad range of meaning, so don't take it as just gentle, but it speaks of being reasonable, fair, gracious, that we are sweet for others to be around, patiently enduring others, not harsh, not critical, not mean-spirited. And then finally there, verse 2, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. This speaks against being inconsiderate, impatient, harsh, or unthoughtful in relating to others. And that involves whoever those others are. Maybe it's a service provider, or a salesperson, or a neighbor, or a family member, that difficult relative, that difficult person at work, to treat even those who would be seen as our enemies with grace. Courtesy. Well, as we move to verse 3, We find here a reference, an emphasis now on the mindset that we must live in response to God's saving grace. That's clearly what verses one and two are about as well. But broadening here now to provide the foundation and the basis of what is said here in verses one through two by way of example. Could have listed a whole bunch of other things. But by way of example, this is how you're to relate to society, this is how the grace of God changes the way we relate. To a lost world. But now we look at the mindset that we must live with in response to God's saving grace. First of all, we must remember who we once were in our depravity. Verse three. Notice the word for. Relate this way in society because, for this reason, we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. For providing the that word for here in verse 3, providing the theological motivations of all the preceding commands. We ourselves were once. So you are to treat the unbelieving world this way because you were once one of them. That only makes sense to a Christian who's been saved by Christ, and we'll get to the rest of that in a moment here in verses 4 and following. But think of this here first in verse 3. We ourselves were once one of them. We were once just as sinful as the quarreling, godless, self-centered unbelievers we relate to in this world we once lacked spiritual understanding. We also broke God's law and resisted authority. We also deceived, were deceived by Satan and listened to the wrong voices. We too were controlled by our passions. So there's to be an understanding of how the unbelieving world thinks and lives. Because we were there too. We lived our days envying Living at war with others, hated by people, and hating them right back. Remembering who we once were in our depravity, however, we must then respond to who we now are in Christ. That's verse 4. But, so that's who you were, verse 3. Relate to your world, verses 1 and 2, because that's who you once were, verse, th- verse 3. But, verse 4, But when the kindness and goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us. And could I add here, I think it's understanding it rightly, He's saying He saved us from all of that. He saved us, verse 3, from all of that. That's who you once were. Remember who you once were. He saved you from that. He delivered you from that. In the past, we too were lost. But God intervened. Christ appeared to die as a sacrifice in our place, paying the cost of our sin before a holy God and rescuing us from our sin, from the blindness that looks like this, all this ugliness. He rescued us from that. He saved you from the verse 3 cesspool. So now it's utterly below you as God's child to swim in that filth. That's who you once were, but not now he saved you. That's looking back from the text. Now looking forward, Paul chases this idea and asks why. Why was God moved to save us? Notice verse 5 again, he saved us. Here's the negative, not because of works done by us in righteousness. Not by works. A fundamental truth of God's revealed word is this, You cannot save yourself. You cannot do good deeds that will earn God's favor and cancel out your sin against Him. The equation doesn't work like that. Even our good deeds reek with self-serving, self-magnifying, self-reliant pride. And further, our good deeds could never erase the offense of the sins that we commit against God. We pile up a few good deeds and we think we've done a pretty good job. But if we would take the time to realize and connect it and say that means that those good deeds can cancel out any sin that I've committed, we're just simply not thinking very clearly about sin. If you think, if you... Insist on earning God's favor that way. Think about it this way. We are given in all that we do to greed and to lust, to hatred, to bitterness, to anger, to selfishness. Our fundamental refusal to worship God as sovereign Lord And that is just, it it has fingers in the very fabric of our being. And that sin against a holy God could never be canceled out by the list of deeds that we perform. A list of deeds that is itself infused with self. We need to recognize, as the scripture teaches, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that the wages of sin is death. The wages of our sin is separation from God for eternity. And so if you insist on earning God's favor with your good works, that that's going to cancel out the guilt of your sin by you being a good person, you're on your way to hell. If that's what you think, if that's how I'm going to please God, if that's how I'm going to stand before Him, that's not how it's done. It's impossible. If you think your Christian family will save you, if you think trying your best will save you, if you think going to church will save you, you're dead wrong. Notice again what the text says so clearly. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness. God saves no one on the basis of good deeds. Does he want you to live righteously? Yes. Does he want us to live good deeds? Of course, it's an emphasis of this book over and again. That's not how your soul is redeemed. It's not how you're saved. How does God save his people from sin? How does he rescue us and give us eternal life that delivers us from the folly and the sensuality of this world? It's right there also in verse 5. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. He saves us according to his own mercy. And this is what we must grasp. It's not by my deeds to earn the favor of God, but it's He looks on me and treats me with mercy. He does not crush me as my sin deserves, but treats me mercifully. God was not moved by anything that he found in us to give us the gift of salvation. And if you're still separated from Christ, know this. He's not going to find anything good in you that demands that, you, that he receives you. He's moved by his own mercy and kindness and goodness. More specifically, he saves this way. It's not by our righteousness, but according to his mercy. And here's how he does it. The end of verse 5, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit. As we place our trust in Jesus' death to pay the judgment against our sins, as we trust his resurrection power, God washes our soul with regenerating effect. The renewal of the Holy Spirit, I think a second idea here, though closely tied, this speaks of that new life that we receive instantaneously at conversion. Life which is then evidenced in progressive spiritual growth as we walk in Christ every day. I can't draw you a picture of this. We can't really point to anything in this world that perfectly illustrates it. But we trust in faith that this is how God does it He pours out his Holy Spirit as if water and cleanses our soul. In that moment, he gives us new life, not because of what we've earned, but by his mercy. He so washes us and gives us a new birth. So our salvation is not by works and our salvation is not by just believing the right things. There is a work of God that washes our soul and cleanses us and gives us new life in him. Now, obviously, would anybody stand up and say, I can do that. I can wash my soul in the Holy Spirit. I can cleanse myself. I mean, it would be ridiculous. This is a work. We can't draw a picture of it. We can't give a real illustration of it anywhere. This is a work that God alone must do and will do in the lives of those who trust him. So though I can't see it, I don't fully understand it, there's a sense of it in my life that he has indeed washed me clean through my trust in the gospel. He's washed me clean from the guilt of my sin. But we receive the spiritual life when God the Father pours out his Holy Spirit upon us, verse 5, whom, verse 6, he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior. So whom... That is, the Holy Spirit, He, God the Father, poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So it's in connection, in relationship with Jesus Christ, trusting Him as our salvation, the Father then pours out the Spirit, and indeed the Son does as well, Acts chapter 2, pours out the Spirit upon us that we are cleansed of our sin. poured out is this watery imagery and it's really connected through the entire Bible at least in the prophets and as we come to Acts so think in terms of Joel 2 and Ezekiel 36 and then Acts 2 where the disciples say as the spirit comes and cleanses them and gives them life they point back to this baptism of the spirit and So we as believers are so baptized as we trust the gospel. But why does God lavish this grace upon us in this way? Verse 7, so that, here's the outcome, so that being justified by His grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. So we start where? We're all sinners, we break God's law, by nature we're subject to His just judgment and eternity in hell. But God sovereignly chooses to make us His heirs, justifying us by His grace, saying, this one is declared righteous, this one is fit for eternity in my presence. And once justified, then, we become heirs of eternal life, that hope of eternal life. Through no goodness of our own, we inherit it. And this eternal life with God constitutes, then, our hope. It's where our focus is in this world. It's what we really long for. The anticipation of our future reward on the authority of God's promise. Heaven is our home. Glory is our destiny. And it is all due to God's amazing grace. This truth, this reality, is to so transform that it changes the way we talk and think and interact in this world. Because it becomes our new identity. Because God has declared us righteous. Because God has washed us clean of our sin. Because this is all of grace and not of works. We have full confidence then that we will have eternal life in Christ. So let's take it, this instruction here, and just walk back again to the island of Crete. To this decadent, godless world. And no doubt, as new believers in these early churches are beginning to put these ideas into practice and saying we've got to live very differently than the world around us, I, I don't doubt, look at verses 1 and 2, that people are going to start saying, who are these people? Who are they? They're aliens here on Crete. These people who honor the governing authorities, they don't deserve it who are they these people who are so anxious to help others and do righteous deeds and good works who are these people that don't speak evil against others and don't like to get into quarreling and are gracious in their way with others and treat even those that they would be natural enemies they treat them with courtesy who are these people Well, they're people who know who they are. That's who they are. They're people who know who they are. They're people who know that the cause they live for is far more important than anything going on in this dying world. They're people who know they're headed somewhere far more glorious than anything this world can offer. They are people rescued from the ways and means of this fallen world. They're people whose relationships in society are transformed by the realization that what God has done for them and who they are now is His holy people, filled with zeal for good works. That's their identity. That's who they are. And that's how they operate. So, Eden Baptist Church, jumping ahead from Crete and ancient days to our own situation, we too live in a raging, contentious, quarreling nation. We live among unbelievers who are utterly obsessed with Tuesday. They can't think of anything else. And bitter hatred rules their hearts toward those who oppose their path to the future they want for this country. Eden Baptist Church, I'd like to suggest on the authority of this passage that we've been redeemed from that. We've been redeemed from the godless responses that blind the lost like chains. And may we look higher. May we vote. Do it. May we learn to think, may we care deeply about the future of this country, but may we always be looking higher and keep our perspective. If you cannot witness the love of Christ in gracious terms to someone who's on the exact opposite end politically as you, you have a problem. You're being overwhelmed by this world. The grace of God should so flow from our lives that whether it's somebody on the other side or on our side, we relate to them the same way with words of grace that point higher. There's way more going on here than any one of us knows. What we know is that the grace of God has appeared What we know is that he has saved us, not by works of our own, but according to his own mercy. What we know is that we have received the washing of the Spirit of God, which has made us just with a standing that will enter into eternity. And the political battles of this world are going to look like a grain of sand on the seashore in importance. May we keep it in view. This Savior who loves us, who lavishes us with His grace. This Savior whose blood won our redemption and secures our inheritance in heaven. This Savior will take us all the way home. And may we learn to live caring very deeply about the politics of our world. Caring deeply about the debates and how to help people. All of that fine. But may people see in us, here's someone who's living very differently Here's someone who relates to me, though we should despise one another. In fact, I despise him. I despise her. But here she doesn't despise me. May that grace flow from us as it flowed to us in Christ. May it flow from us in saving grace toward others. We all care about Tuesday, but may. May we care far, far infinitely more about glory. And may our rest in that grace transform the way we relate to everyone and control the real mission of why we're here. May God help us father we do pray to you and ask that you would aid us in our contentions in this troubled and challenged world we don't know what we face in the days ahead we don't know where you will take this world but what we do know is that nothing will ever no wall of satan no fortress of evil will ever stand against the gospel i pray that whatever world you put us in whatever trials and difficulties we may face that we would always remember that we are here to spread the gospel of jesus christ and the grace that was given the mercy that met us in our need the washing and regeneration that we could never invent or produce has been given to us graciously and is there for all what this world so longs to solve from the perspective of the left what this world so longs to solve from the perspective of the right is all peanuts compared to the problem that you have solved in our sin and in our deserved judgment. As we talk together as believers today, those of us that are able to gather and talk about this sermon in our home groups, I pray that this Spirit would pervade and that You'd guide us and direct us to think big and to consider how we may point others to Christ and to know that His kingdom rules over all. And we are citizens of that kingdom. We pray that Your mercies would rest on this nation. We pray for the results on Tuesday or perhaps long after. We pray for those who will demonstrate by their sin that this world is their only home. And I pray that we'd be in our neighborhoods meeting with people and sharing the gospel of grace with our enemies even, knowing that you saved us when we were your enemy. May that grace flow freely from us to a needy and dying world. Through Christ we pray. Amen.